0: You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a 19-year veteran and private markets portfolio manager with a significant asset management shop, as well as an individual with 27 years' experience in the financial services industry, including more than a decade with one of the world's leading pension plans and his current role as CIO for a growing multifamily office practice. Both will speak to how the markets have evolved over the last many years and crises, and what they see happening now and going forward for key industries in Canada and around the world.
1: James Buran is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca.
0: Welcome. Today is Monday, April 27th, and this is Alternative Thinking. I'm James with CASA. Uh, today we're speaking with Ashwin Krishnan from Morgan Stanley Investment Management and Wayne Cozen with Fourth Lane Partners. We'll uh, start with introductions. We'll start with you, Wayne.
2: Thank you. Um, Hi, uh, my name's Wayne Cozen. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Fourth Lane Partners. And Fourth Lane is a new Toronto-based multifamily office. And we have a mission to professionalize and humanize how families engage with their wealth and each other. Uh, we we reformed about a year ago and we're just getting up up and running right now. We've just started to deploy capital in public markets and in hedge funds. And we we're just about to deploy in private markets when, uh, when we came upon this whole uh, coronavirus crisis. So it's creating some interesting mm-hmm. opportunities. Our strategy is to manage wealth for ultra high net worth families in Canada. And we use what's called a um, a goals-based framework for helping families think about how they want to invest their portfolios. And we provide a variety of services mm-hmm. be, um, beyond investment management. And in terms of my specific background, I uh, initially, I, I worked for Imperial Oil in their corporate finance area. But um, About a year out, I came upon an opportunity at the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, which was really just ramping up its investment program at the time. And Mm -hmm. I was there from the beginning of 1995 for about 21, 22 years. And I had the opportunity to work in a variety of areas and do some really interesting things. Uh, As as Teachers, as it's known, is really one of the um, true innovators in institutional asset management. And Canadian pension plans in general have been um, pretty, Pretty impressive on a global scale. While there, I worked on areas such as tactical and strategic asset allocation, introduction of new asset classes, including infrastructure, uh, timberland, commodities, et cetera. I worked on um, passive and active public equities. And I also worked on uh, the implement implementation of some new uh, types of private equity strategies as well. Um, and then one of my final roles there was I ran the fixed income and hedge fund group for a couple of years. So I really got to see uh, a full gamut of investments and I'm more of a jack of all trades rather than a deep expert in any one particular area.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I was saying to, uh, when I describe these podcasts to people, you usually get someone who's very specialized and someone who's who's a generalist. And uh, I think you know who the generalist is in here. Uh, <laughs> so you meant, and you mentioned humanizing and professionalizing Multifamily offices. What does a humanizing mean to uh, to Fourth Lane?
2: So, so that is, we have four different areas where we work with our families, and those include things like education and and family governance services and strategic wealth planning. Uh, and and where that comes from is that you've heard this saying, "shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations." And what often happens okay. is, um, you know, there's a creator of wealth in the family. The second generation um, helps to sustain that wealth, but oftentimes the third generation cannot necessarily sustain it. So we wanna help our families educate their subsequent generations and help them think about how they want to Benefit society, what their values are, what they want to do in terms of their investments Mm -hmm. and also in things like philanthropic areas. So we will work together and help them to to develop a philanthropic plan. We we may do this directly with them. We may bring in some specialized consultants in this area, but we want to help them to think about what is what is really important for them in their life and how do they continue to Mm -hmm. really sustain what made their family um, unique and important in the first place.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, like it's like the there's a creator of wealth and then there's a cratering of wealth at some point in many families, yeah. And so uh one final so how do you define ultra high net worth? Like what's your kind of uh, sweet spot or target what kind of families um,
2: Generally people with uh, 20 million in assets and above. Um we we want to work with them and create a really um, well diversified portfolio that has exposure across various asset classes and is also well internationally diversified. And you know, I think uh, people come to us and often over half mm-hmm. of their equity portfolio is in Canadian equities. And you know, when we go through periods like uh, March of of 2020, we see that Canada was hit a lot because it's not a very well diversified market. It's very exposed to oil and gas and materials, and mm-hmm. the Canadian dollar also tends to sell off in um, crisis situations and that happened again. You know, Having international exposure um, would have really helped. I believe the MSCI ACWI was down about 14.5% in Canadian dollar terms whereas the S&PTSX was down about 22-23%. Exactly, yeah.
0: Uh, let's hear from Ashwin and, uh, and your background and what you're doing at, at Morgan Stanley and then specifically, I believe you had the, the private markets area the private lending.
1: Yeah, hey James, uh, hey Wayne. It's great, it's great to meet everyone uh, over the podcast. I've been at Morgan Stanley for 17 years now. I just came up on my 17th year last week. Uh, I'm you know? I'm one of the co heads of a opportunistic private credit fund. Um, so within asset management, Morgan Stanley, you have you know a hundred billion dollar ish alternative uh, investment management mandate. Within that, private credit is a, is a key focus area. And a in an area of growth we manage, and I can get about three and a half billion within the private credit area. And and my specific area of focus within that is to focus on private illiquid opportunistic mm-hmm. investments. So simply stated, that's providing bespoke, customized credit solutions to uh, privately held North American companies, and that's typically in the form of subordinated debt. Uh, subordinated debt plus preferred stock, and in some cases, equity co-investment as well. So the investment style is very much a private equity style, um, deep value orientation. Mm-hmm. We're spending weeks and months at these companies, uh, understanding their financial profile, customizing these these uh, credit solutions to help them attain a specific goal, be it um, an acquisition, be it refinancing, a existing credit facility. Uh, the companies, in some cases, might have gotten into some trouble because of a macro shock event like we just went through in COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the whole gamut of um, solution sets. And being part of Morgan Stanley, we obviously have access to uh, you know really unique deal flow that uh, that we're able mm-hmm. to uh, review and and, and provide uh, what we think are a a creatively. Uh, structured set of credit solutions that help these privately owned companies get to the next level. Uh, Prior to this job, uh, I worked within a principal investment group also at Morgan Stanley, which invested the firm's balance sheet capital in a variety of private investments, private equity, private debt, what have you. Uh, This was pre-financial crisis uh, when banks still did that in a relatively major way. Uh, and in 2009, I moved over to uh, to help start the private investment effort. And, and today we we manage about $3.5 billion of capital uh, under various funds.
0: Right on. And then so you mentioned deal flow. Are the loans that you're doing, these private or liquid opportunistic ones, are they um, sponsored uh, loans, like with a private equity partner bringing them to you and working with them? Or is it something that you go and... And you know them and find them or they come to you or how how do you get your uh, your deals?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of both. I'd say that, you know, private debt as an asset class on its own has seen, you know, remarkable growth in the last five or six years. It's become, okay. uh, you know, become somewhat of a flavor du jour. And most of that private credit capital has been created in the sponsor-backed financing world uh, because that's where most of the deals tend to be. Uh, you know yeah. our approach is to be relatively agnostic. We're trying to find the best risk-adjusted returns for our investors, and and we'll travel anywhere to to effectuate that. Uh, a subset of our strategy also gives us the flexibility to go out and buy public uh, instruments when markets dislocate, like we had over the last few weeks. Uh, we have the same investment approach, i.e., it's buy-and-hold investing. We're not necessarily day traders, but what what often happens is that uh, during these dislocated markets, you have uh, you know, good credits and good companies turn out of the bad due to technical factors and issues that specific funds may have. And we're able to go in and, uh, and buy assets of significantly larger companies at, at pretty big discounts. Uh, so to answer your question, we're not focused only on the sponsor market. Uh, we look at deals from, from all sources, uh, including the unsponsored side, which in fact makes up a pretty significant and, and major chunk of our deal flow. And then we also have a sub strategy that's that's fairly opportunistic, in the um, in in the public credit space,
0: right? And this may make make more sense in the public side. But uh, you said you're not really day trading, and you I guess typically hold right to maturity. And and but um, is that is that so? Like you're holding pretty much like the bulk of it to maturity, and then why why might you sell? Is it price or credit or some sort of exogenous factor or? Um, Portfolio liquidity, or what kind of things kind of set off a sell sell signal for you?
1: Yeah, eighty percent of the time, we're holding to a refinancing uh, or a sale of the business. That's typically how these things roll from one to the next. But uh, on a few occasions, we might choose to sell because uh, you know we we legged into something at a good price. We held it for two years. Uh, it's then achieved par because the market feels mm. strong, and we might. We might sell out of it. That's that's happened less often historically, uh, and and the second reason might be that uh, because of the fact that as a discounted loan approaches par, the percentage of that loan's weight in your portfolio may grow, and you know purely as a function of portfolio management, you, you might want to take some profits uh, to reallocate the
0: assets right. as well. Cool. And then uh, one more question: On your structure, uh, closed end, open end. If it's open, do you look at gating, or how do you how do you manage the liquidity of the underlying to the uh, to the investors?
1: Yeah, it's completely closed end structured, much like a number of private equity style funds would be. Uh, investors commit capital to us. We don't sit on cash. Uh, when we find an investment opportunity, we would then call that capital uh, for that percentage of the investment that we would need the capital for and then deploy it in that deal. So we would look to deploy a capital over a three year time frame, roughly speaking. uh, So we're not we're not under specific pressure to get all the capital out in one one year.
0: Very good. And back to Wayne, you've been in the business for decades, decades and decades. Uh, And I I guess you were employee number seven at at Ontario Teachers back in the day. So
2: (laughs) not quite, but. uh...
0: Yeah, so so you have seen quite a few markets. Um, what have you? What do you have to make of the last? Uh, I don't know, maybe six six weeks to maybe three months, and we've had some gyrations in public. And what what do you think is going to happen in private? It's a huge question for you, but we'll start with that.
2: It, it is, you know, I I, I think we've seen. Through past bouts of extreme volatility, and and I've lived through at least two major events. The first one being, sort of the two thousand tech meltdown, and the next couple of years mm-hmm. had a fair bit of weakness in the markets. And then, of course, there was the global financial crisis from uh, in the two thousand and eight Lehman et cetera situation. And you know they were each very different, um, but um, particularly after global financial crisis, um, the the investing world was. Quite different, and the investment landscape changed afterwards in, in various ways, and the way that people manage risks changed as well. I would say so. So that has changed a lot. Yeah,
0: one would hope, I guess. Yeah, because <laughs> we've. Uh, I know that it seems that governments have learned lessons. They started pumping money into this into the economy almost immediately. Um, what would be the result of our of our transgressions of putting so much money into the to the economy?
2: It's going to be fascinating to see this. Like, of course, you know, we're in a, the most significant event in any of our lifetimes. You know, this is something that will go down in the history books. Um, as Certainly, the most significant event since the Second World War. I have to think. You, you know, after 08, um, you know, we had changes in the way the banks were regulated. Uh, that changed substantially, mm-hmm. and uh, banks had to shrink their balance sheets, reduce the amount of leverage, and you know, then the um, the way that they were, they were treated somewhat more as a public good. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder if some of that could happen in other types of industries um, today, because in, in many parts of the um, travel industry, etc., you know, hotels, um, airlines, etc., are asking the government for bailouts. But, you know, to go into a little bit more, the, the other big question is going to be, mm-hmm. uh, how do we pay for all this debt that's being issued to help to keep our economy going? And is this going to prove to be some sort of inflation? And you see some, uh, you know, some people that are very alarmist, the sort of Bitcoin maximalists that say we're going to see hyperinflation in the future.
0: Yeah, because we saw that after 08, or as, as it was rolling through everyone, that gold and Bitcoin, you know, was, was founded from that and And people said, oh, well, you're going to want to have gold because all this inflation is going to calm down. But it really didn't happen. Um, It seemed they started, you know, tightening as almost as well as the economy was coming back. And do
2: you think they're going to go right this time? One of my comments would be is that I think that they never really fully um, went back to more of a steady state, neutral monetary policy. Hmm. And you can argue that's one of the things that made our system somewhat more unstable today because the – the fed and the ecb and the bank of canada did not have that much room to cut interest rates you know the fed had started to taper but then there was the taper tantrum that occurred Um, Mm -hmm. so they had to sort of backtrack a little bit off of that so you know i I would say that situation and never having gone back to more significant positive real interest rates etc made the system somewhat more unstable this time i'm not saying we're going to have hyperinflation in the future but i think it, it is uh, going to be difficult for governments to, to pay back the the debt that they growing, particularly in places like Italy.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's always tough when you have a monetary unit without a, a fiscal or, or a political one. Uh, Ashwin, like when you were in the last crisis, you were on the desk, um, or just before you are on the Morgan Stanley desk and managing prop money, like you said, in PE and, and lending and such, and uh, now you're running a fund. So how has that changed? Uh, or has it been pretty much the same stuff except you have clients that, you know, maybe a few thousand clients that would effectively call you versus versus one?
1: No, it's actually, you know, pretty meaningfully different because I think in a fund you have, you know, you're, you're, you're limited, and I mean that in a good way, by, by having a specified mm-hmm. investment mandate. Uh, sometimes when you have prop capital, you uh, know, in, in a prop setting, the, the uh, broadness of the of the apertures actually can be constraining in some respects because you don't know what exactly to focus on. Uh, so, yeah. as, a, you know, as a stylistic matter, you know, nothing's perfect in life, but I would suggest that having a fund <clears throat> format with, uh, with a narrower mandate makes you better at that specific thing that you do. Now, what tends to happen is that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we all become. <clears throat> tree guys as opposed to forest guys. We, we often sometimes miss the forest. But, but the uh, give up in terms of that macro view is picked up in terms of deep sector level expertise. But if you're attached to a bigger platform like I am, you, know, you can overcome some of the shortcomings of being too specific because you have colleagues and um, you know, other investment funds that you sit next to or share assets with that you can get quickly up to speed when you look at you know cross market opportunities that become actionable to you for brief moments in time.
0: Mm. Yeah. What, do you find the, uh, what do you think the expectations are going forward for private debt? I mean, we've kind of been used to lower yields, lower everything, um, and now we've had a shock. Do you th- is there any sort of like, is this like a garch moment where things kind of shift regime or is it just we're going to continue along the same type of path? Like, What, what are you guys seeing?
1: Yeah, look, I view the market as, as not really as a trading opportunity, but as a longer term secular opportunity. I don't think you'd see a, a real slowdown in the growth of the asset class in Toto. I think you will see a delineation of strategies, right? So up until uh, March of this year, the, the flavor du jour for the last few years has been direct lending because you can monetize the liquidity premium, uh, you know banks aren't holding those loans in their balance sheet so you know you'd be better off um, investing in, in direct lenders who have access to all that deal and all that capital I think what this has shown mm-hmm. is that uh, having a, a broad and flexible mandate where direct lending is is one arrow in the quiver opportunistic investing is another arrow in the quiver distressed investing is a third arrow in the quiver having a thirty thousand uh, foot view of of the various pieces of the pie within the within private credit and allocating dollars not really market timing but allocating dollars in proportion to what the next five-year opportunity set might be is is the way to go uh, as opposed to just being uh, you know a follower of trends and saying I'm only doing distress or I'm only doing direct lending because Mm. And we saw in the 08-09 crisis is that all these vast pools of distressed money were raised immediately after the crisis and didn't really get tapped right for a long period of time, uh, and so really having flexible capital is is kind of uh, you know the kind of kind of the way I think about it, uh, and the asset class as a whole I think will continue to grow because across the across the globe the, the liabilities that need that need to get funded or need to get at least serviced with the current cash yield component continues to grow. Uh, I think it's a really interesting diversifier in a private equity-only portfolio, and I think we've only scratched the surface with these large pools of capital that that up until now have have focused on allocating to alternatives but have the preponderance of the assets in private equity or private equity-like assets where the monetization events are – occur in, in, in a few years at a time, as opposed to a serial distribution of cash, which a lot of these private credit strategies uh, try to adopt.
0: Hmm. How about you, Wayne? Because um, you've worked with the forest and the trees, with the timber and such like that, and and uh, so many asset classes. Um, what are your expectations for the public, different public markets and private markets going forward for your clients? What are you telling your, your families
2: uh, to kind of expect? Uh, On their statements in the next two to five years type of thing sure you know i think i think it's very important to try to make sure that you create a portfolio that is as resilient as possible and you know resiliency is a word that's come up more often in the last month or two and and there's been talk that we have to make our economies and our um you know our corporations more resilient and you know in a portfolio context this can call for having diversification across asset classes, across geographies, sectors, you know, maybe having a little bit of exposure to things like gold. And, you Mm -hmm. know, and um, if you're worried about inflation in the future, maybe having a little bit in something like inflation-linked bonds, where, you know, the yield is not great today, but if we do see inflation really pick up, then you at least do have a bit of an insurance policy there.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, inflation's back. Yeah, it's, uh, how about um, in the crisis? And uh, Ashwin mentioned this. Like they had a few funds that came out the distressed stuff, and they got uh, they had some some term. Uh, I'm not sure what the terms were, but basically, the ones I saw were kind of like three year funds or four year funds, pretty short. But basically, going to a specific area, like we're going to buy a bunch of houses that are underwater in whatever area. Um, well, I guess bonds as well. Are are you? Starting to hear about that, or are people starting to pitch to you, hey, we've got this idea that we can I don't want to take advantage of a pandemic, but you know there are dislocations in the market, something like that coming out. And if so, like kind of what what kind of terms do you typically look for there, like um, like a tenor and and uh, alignment with uh, with your client's interest. It.
2: it I think that could be, you know, sort of the distressed, or, or certainly distressed debt, or certainly within credits, are areas where the um, the return on risk should be better in the future than what we saw in the recent past, because we were starting with spreads so low uh, towards the end of last year and early this year. Um, you know, in terms of distressed, it might be a little bit early in the cycle still, um, mm-hmm. until we start. To see things really start to play out you know if i even think back to um what happened in 08 this is maybe slightly different but if you think of the initial bailouts of the financial institutions like uh, like morgan stanley for example you had firms like cic and others put in money and in many instances the first pitch um was maybe a little bit early and they got diluted mm-hmm. away with subsequent capital raises that were required a little bit later on You know, we haven't seen that much yet in terms of um, bankruptcies, et cetera. There's been a little bit of talk about Neiman Marcus. I don't know if they've fully filed, but, you know, certainly there's going to be a bunch of situations that occur. And there have been people that have been playing on some of this, like, you know, the infamous CDX Series 6 trade that's been out in the market for a while, et cetera.
0: Yeah, kind of to remind ourselves—it's only been five or six weeks of actual market turmoil, not three months. But I guess, <laughs> have you have you seen anything in there, Ashwin, from your uh, from Morgan Stanley? Is there rumblings of a like these uh, uh, new funds coming out to to address the situation?
1: Yeah, look, I've seen uh, I've seen headlines about at least four or five opportunity funds coming out from you know the big <laughs> alternative asset managers that that we all are familiar with uh, trying to. Raise capital from the, uh, you know, $2.5 billion ranges to $15 billion. Uh, oh. you know, yeah, yeah, 15 being the high, biggest number I've seen.
0: Holy moly. That's...
1: <laughs> you know, the, the names go from being called dislocation funds, which would have a shorter tenant to them, uh, uh, all the way up to true distressed funds. The big question that we had to answer in the last 12 months is, you guys are, you know, this is really late in the cycle. So how are you positioning for it? And now what's happened with the COVID situation is that we are in the middle of the cycle. Now, the cycle may not be a traditional cycle, but it's still created a lot of uh, scenarios where people are modeling in you know, 60, 90 days of businesses that are in their portfolio where revenue is essentially non-existent, right? Mm-hmm. Which you a huge you know, liquidity gap in, in people's balance sheets and there's plenty of scrambling going on. What I've seen is a pivot to sort of reignite the conversation around these opportunistic and special situation type uh, investment funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and secondly, I think the, uh, the focus will, will really bifurcate into you know, public market opportunities and private market opportunities. Uh, the public market trade in some respects you know, has been cut in half from where it was five weeks ago uh the most liquid you know credits in the sub-investment rate space fell by something like 22 dollar points over the span of a week which is which is span kind of two weeks which is completely unheard of right you went from par at the end of february to 78 cents uh mid-march uh which was scary but you know people were also people at tripod were like wow this is this is fantastic." But a lot of that good stuff, the really good stuff, has bounced back. Uh, you know, high-quality insurance brokers, software companies, things that really shouldn't be that impacted by uh, yeah. you know, like downturn. You know, stuff's back at 97, 96, 99 cents on the dollar. So it's it's sort of you know a head snapper for us to see this kind of equity-like volatility in 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 the credit markets. But you've had things like the Fed and uh, the U.S. Congress moving at a speed uh, and, and deploying capital at a rate much, much faster than they did in the last crisis because A, they have a playbook to draw from and B, this is sort of an act of God type of event. You know, there are no good guys and bad guys and, you know, pointing the blame as to who, who created the mortgage uh, crisis in 08 and 09. This is just a really bad situation that we're all dealing with. And, uh, you know, I don't think the Fed looks at it by saying, "You know, I'm bailing out people who are long credit and their bonds ran up 40 points, good for them. It's it's just the cost of saving the system, right? You you flood the system with cash and uh, people who are long happen to benefit from it. I, I just don't think they can look at it from the view of you know, picking winners and losers. They just have to save the system.
0: Yeah, I think I remember in 98, yeah, LTCM, which when I was at DS and they said, this is a Six Sigma moment in the bond market. This should never happen in the history of the universe. And of course it did. Um, But there, there was just one fund that was kind of like obviously levered and doing a lot of stuff. Um, uh, What what do you think about that, Wayne?
2: Yeah, you know, there were some extreme movements and the market was quite irrational for a couple of weeks there where we saw days when you would think they were risk off days and interest rates. Like U.S. Treasuries did not move in the direction that one would have expected. So we had... (laughs) whipsawing going on there. And, you know, but that apparently was caused by um, some folks having to delever. So there was there were forced sellers. And, you know, this is where I think opportunities can get created in markets, when you get people that have extreme motivations to have to transact for various reasons, you know, and we may see this Mm -hmm. in certain instances, with downgrades forcing people who are now offside of certain limits that they have that will have to transact. You know, we're going to have restructurings that occur, and certain people just will not be able to or will not be allowed to hold debt that is in a, um, you know, default, technical default sort of situations. You know, one of the big worries in the markets over the last couple mm-hmm. of years was that such a bulk of the investment grade issuance was in the triple B space. And what happens if it gets downgraded? Now, of course, we have uh, Mr. Powell willing to step forward and buy those. Right.
0: And what do you think of the real estate and the mortgage space, obviously, if people can't pay their, especially commercial rents, and then you have, like, it'll take a while, obviously, because real estate's kind of a slow-moving animal, but um, what do you think about that? Because you're kind of in all assets, aren't you?
2: Uh, We are, and that, you know, figuring out where we go in commercial real estate is going to be um, very interesting. I, I have to think it's going to be very difficult for both office and particularly for retail. Um, we've seen that with some of the retailers, you, you know, there was a story in the, today's newspaper talking about, um, many of the tenants in malls are not paying their rent right now. Uh, and yep. malls are closed. So, you know, it's going to be a tricky situation. The thing that helps support that in Canada, at least is that many of those are owned by the big pension plans, like Ontario teachers with Cadillac Fairview and Oxford mm-hmm. properties owned by Omers and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, the case to depot and CPPIB, et cetera. So that mm-hmm. there's at least deep pocketed owners there, but, you know, they're presumably going to have to try to figure out how they can work through those situations over the next year or two.
0: Yeah. Cause they all still have, uh, still have bogeys to hit. Um, so maybe, maybe Ashwin, where, where are you, where are you finding opportunities? Like, is there something that before the crisis you guys kept an eye on and now it's like, wow, this is a really great, great deal. Um, uh, is there, yeah, is there any like kind of, uh, Really fallen angels, but there's any areas that are really shining now.
1: Yeah, we, uh, you know, I say you know, 85% of our time today is focused on the secondary market. You no, know, w- one big leg of the of the move has passed us by. That's the really, really good stuff. But we think that there's still some really good stuff, uh, and note that I didn't use two goods, but just one, where you know, a good <laughs> business which may have been over levered in an initial LBO. 2 years ago um, you can probably find you know a decent handful a couple of handfuls of first lien senior secured loans that um, are trading at 82 85 cents on the dollar so to put that in perspective you know these are loans that got done 2 years ago at at L plus 300 so that's 4% money at a small discount at 99 cents on the dollar so borrowing at 4 4% and change and today you can potentially buy some of those loans at eighty-five cents on the dollar for the first position in the balance sheet. The thesis being that in two years, if you just held that, and and the natural thing that happens to businesses that uh, that are in the leverage finance market is that they transact, i.e., they get sold, they do events, they borrow new money, etc., and you get taken out through an event in two years. You know, uh-huh. you generate a fourteen percent IRR or a one point three times multiple of money just holding that. Uh, and if you're wrong, and there's some probability that you could be wrong because you picked the wrong horse, then mm-hmm. you're in in, in in the driver's seat and you can run the table to, to own what ostensibly at the end of the day might should be a good business if your credit works done correctly.
0: That sounds like a great trade. Is, is that the kind of stuff, like when you're speaking with clients or investors, uh, and I imagine you are a fair bit now with uh, a lot of web conferencing of that, um, what uh, what's kind of your advice to them if they're looking at they're looking at this is that it's uh, it's just a place to be or there's there's still some inherent danger in in, um, in the markets
1: yeah look there's there's inherent danger in everything right I mean a first lien secured loan of a company that makes uh, automotive after parts uh, trading oh, agents yeah. is a very different animal from the first lien secured loan of a Tech-enabled service provider, right? Even though they both have ostensibly the same return profile, the the auto parts business will have little to no visibility into the next 90 days of its um, of its revenue stream, whereas the IT business ostensibly would have much better visibility, right? So, right. So it's it's all about bringing the credits, and so I think you'll you'll have funds, the distressed funds being among them who would actually prefer to own the auto parts business because it's a natural way to own the business, whereas the more total return or, uh, you know, pull-to-par school of uh, investment funds would prefer the more defensive tech situation mm-hmm. where they really don't want to own a business because they're credit investors by and large. They would rather just write out that 85-to-par um, progression in price and then move on with life once once they get taken out, uh, because think about it, right? Loans and bonds historically mm-hmm. have all been fixed income instruments. You get a coupon every month or every quarter, and that's your stream of income. And now, for a for a brief moment in time, you have the opportunity to earn, you know, high single digits to low double digit capital appreciation, which yeah. which is fantastic. Uh, all else being the same.
0: Great. How about you, Wayne? Uh, how, when you're speaking with clients on their portfolios and how to allocate them going forward, again, like I say, it's only been six weeks of this craziness. But uh, what, um, what's, uh, what's kind of your advice to them as as they go forward, uh, to having a diversified portfolio? But is there any any kind of specialty or areas that you're looking at?
2: The credit or private debt areas or distressed debt um, are areas that are of a lot of interest right now. I think you know we're talking to them about. Putting in place structures where they can buy the debt of good companies at a substantial discount. Um, you know, have managers that are experienced in the distress space that know how to do workouts. Often these are mm-hmm. these types of organizations have more lawyers than they do finance people, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and they know how to go through the indentures and figure out what what their edge is in those sorts of transactions. So that's an area where we're going to be likely looking at allocating more capital. You know, another thing to, to move slightly different area, I think we may see some good opportunities in secondary private equity in the near future as well, but perhaps mm-hmm. in secondary private debt as well because you know, we saw this in 08 is that the denominator effect kicked in where you know, people may have a limit yeah. of 10% private equity, but their fund went from 100 billion to 85 billion. So now if you had 10 over 85, even if your PE portfolio didn't go down, now all of a sudden you were overweight and you know what, you were expecting to get a bunch of money back from PE, but not only is that money not coming back, you have other people uh, drawing down more cash. So people kind of freaked out and, and looked, to uh, get off private equity at a bit of a discount. So I think this will take a few months to play out, but I think we could see some of that happen
0: again. Yeah, because what's the what's the uh, rule of thumb? You, like, you kind of overcommit 150% of whatever you're going to put in private equity because it'll never be all called, and then it, sometimes it is. So how, how do you guys get exposure to to funds that have drawdowns or draw, uh, capital calls and then uh, the harvesting and all that too? Like, How, how do you guys manage all the, the cash flows? Or is that something that you do within the portfolios that you manage
2: for your clients? it is we've created a fund um for private up op- that we call a private opportunities fund um, where we will be investing uh, directly in funds we will also be de- doing co-investments alongside funds and also doing some direct transactions or partnering with other firms as well you know and this is similar to the strategies that you have at many of the big Canadian pension plans that, that do, um, you know, in many instances, kind of one third direct deals, one third co-investments and one third funds. So we're looking at that sort of a strategy, um, for our clients as well, but you know, doing the co-investments and the directs can help to reduce a bit of the fee drag when you're paying, you know, the high fees that are typical of, of private assets. Yeah.
0: And how do you manage that from the staff side with co-investments? Um, you have know, you have folks that are dedicated to that area, uh, that look at all the deals and kind of like partition it like in I guess, yeah, you can only do so many at one time and and like maybe how many deals would you take on uh, for your clients is like a percentage of the assets, or how do you use that?
2: Yeah, that's we have a limited capacity to do that um, for sure. Um, but as we uh, as we grow in terms of of assets, we uh, we will be increasingly adding resources in that area. At times, we, we will uh, bring on people for temporary assignments, sort of in consulting roles. Mm-hmm. folks that have done these transactions in the past and are semi-retired, so they, uh, they can help us do transactions. So, you know, we try to be a little bit more variable in that space, but we likely will be increasing uh, our headcount in that space in the near future.
0: That's great. Yeah, it's good to kind of rent that experience and, and bring yep. it in-house there. That's super. Well, this has been a great experience, I think, for everybody. Uh, Thanks, you, uh, Ashwin and and Wayne, for your time today. And uh, we definitely look forward to having you uh, both on another podcast uh, sometime soon. Thank you. Always wonderful
2: to be here today.
1: Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time as well.